1: Hello, and welcome to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. Well, November means school conferences with teachers. And I remember as a parent, there were some conferences where I went in pretty confidently, knowing my kids were doing okay, and some that I actually thought they were doing okay and just got blown away by the comments of the teachers. And so I thought this would be a really good time to start thinking about how to prepare for conferences, what to do with the information that you're given, etc. Because I know in my practice, this is about the time that people come in because they're concerned about how their child is learning. Well, I have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Kelly Christian, and she's a licensed psychologist, and she's also the clinical director of Lawrence Schools, Ethan D. Schaefer Center for Learning Differences. Now, this school and the center provides community outreach to families, as well as schools and professionals all over Northeastern Ohio. I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Christian when I actually went to Lawrence School and was able to take a tour, and I was blown away. The Schaefer Center offers low-cost psychological and learning assessments, professional development, multi-sensory tutoring services, as well as consultations for parents who are just seeking to better understand their child's learning. Dr. Christian is also an adjunct assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University, and she supervises the assessment training of doctoral students, both at Case Western Reserve as well as Kent State University. If you do, I don't want to forget to tell you, if you want to learn more about the Schaefer Center for Learning, you can go to the lawrenceschool.org website. Thank you, Dr. Kelly Christian, for joining me today. Yes, thank you. I So I mentioned about the families that are now, if they, they've either already been through their child's conferences with their teachers or they're about to go in. This seemed, I always remembered November was that time. And like I said, it can create quite a bit of anxiety mm-hmm. because either you already know how the kid's doing or you could find out that really they're already struggling and it's only been a few months. So what are some things that parents can do, let's say once they've been through the conference and the teacher is identifying that there's a problem? And I realize that problems can cover the gamut, but let's mm-hmm. let's specifically talk about concerns with academic achievement. Let's just start there because i know and i'm sure we'll get into it there's a lot of factors that go into achieving academically not just you know what our brain is able to do so right where where should they start like i know they that's a big question for me sure so i think if the
0: classroom teacher is explaining to the parents that they have concerns my hope is that teacher is also giving the parents their next step Right. It might mean, okay. so I am concerned and I'm letting you know, but I'm also going to start roping in the school psychologist who can move ahead with testing or sorting out if there are specific services that might help this child. Right. Um, I think the issue is if the teacher sees a concern, but then leaves the parents empty handed with what's coming next, then parents are very confused, concerned and worried. Right. Thankfully, that's rare that happens. um, And that's why they often probably go to you and say, what do I do? Right. Right? Or they call me. Um, But often if they haven't already gotten some kind of plan from the classroom teacher, they should be contacting the school to find out, okay, this is what has been raised to me in my conference. So what's next? Is it, if it's a younger child, younger than third grade, they might be moving into title one reading or math for specific concerns, right? Um where they can provide like targeted intervention that is meant to help narrow any gaps in their discrete learning skills, right? Um, or it may mean that they're going to start initiating an evaluation for services throughout the school on what's called an IEP, an individualized education plan, right?
1: What I find often are those gray zone is that gray mm-hmm. zone or that it that child who's just in between. So, maybe they're not achieving academically like we expect them to or how they should be doing, but they might not be bad enough. Well, and I hate to use the word bad enough. They might not be challenged enough that – the teacher is saying, hey, we're going to initiate an evaluation. And I think those are a lot of times the parents that do come and seek advice from their pediatrician, for example, because they know something needs to be done, but it might not be severe enough that the child would even qualify if they were evaluated. So what would you tell a family that might be in their child might be in that gray zone? Sure.
0: So I think for parents, it's important that they trust their gut, right? So if a child is in the gray zone, according to the school, but at home, you're like, oh, no, this is not coming together for my child. My child's incredibly bright. They're curious. They, you know, can tell me a whole lot, but they can't write a whole lot or what they're writing doesn't make any sense to me or their spellings not make any sense to me. Or they're, they love it when I read to them, but they do not want to read on their own, right? Those are all red flags to pay attention to. And so if the school is suggesting, you know, we're a little concerned, but we want to watch and wait, and the parent is thinking, I want to get on top of this, right? I would suggest then the next step is always first start with the school, yes. you know, because they can, you know, collaborate with you and potentially open the door to services with or without testing. Um But often that's how people end up at my door, right? They need private evaluations because the school is not concerned enough at this point. And generally, the kids who I find who are in that gray zone are the kids who are working incredibly hard, are very bright, can compensate well, right? Until they can, right? right? And so, um, you know, the testing is really helpful from a preventative point of view to suggest, okay, here's some gaps in their skills that if we just intervene just a little bit, or provide a different type of educational experience, that child's really going to thrive, right?
1: Agree 100%. I think what I tend to see, and you can tell me more, is that, you know, they get through kindergarten, first grade, second grade, maybe even third grade. Mm-hmm. But when the amount of work that they get increases, the more details that come in, the more independence that's required of them. I remember when my child was in fourth or fifth grade, a uh, teacher using the word, we, we just don't handhold them anymore. And so now it's up to them to take home their work and to bring it back and mm-hmm. and so on. And so, like you mentioned, kids could do really well in those early ages, By working very hard, and even the parents working really hard to, you know, help, help as well. And then all of a sudden, as it gets, you know, more challenging, the curriculum specifically, then that's where we start to see the breakdown. But I also... Worry a couple a couple things come to mind. One is I worry about those kids and their mental health because they're working hard, they're constantly either being redirected or so on. And the other thing I worry about is I'm all about early intervention. Mm-hmm. Now I know not everybody has the resources, and not not every child would need it. I'm you know I'm not suggesting that. But I feel like, like you said, if you know where the gaps are, then by the time they are in that third, fourth, fifth grade, they're better prepared. And so finding out sooner than later, I think, is always a good idea.
0: Right, right. Yep, and it can help drive uh, the services. It helps parents advocate for their child the more they know, the earlier they know, right? And we also know that when we intervene with kids early on, they really don't require much intervention in those later elementary school years. Um, typically, you're kind of doing like a check in in that middle school and high school transition to help them, you know, maybe increase their reading fluency or have access to audiobooks if they have dyslexia. Um, you're not doing that nitty gritty phonics based instruction that you were doing in kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, and beyond grade. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but the earlier you do it, the you know you're going to narrow that gap for them pretty quickly, and so you know they're really off to the races at that point. Um, but withholding it until there's an actual problem, now you've created this gap that's far larger, right? And so with that gap being as wide as it is, you then need more time on task to master those skills, um, versus when they're younger the time on tasks required to master those skills is less because the expectations are lower when you're younger and then they build on each other. So, you know, rather than trying to build on skills um, in addition to filling in the stuff that they've missed Mm -hmm. as a third grader, if you could just start the ball rolling
1: in kindergarten first grade, they're going to be way better off, right? Do you find that there's any signs or symptoms that come before kindergarten or first grade that parents might be aware of? For example, I know for me, I'm always trying to decipher, is this developmental versus is this something that is actually um, a precursor to a problem? So what are some things that they should be looking for?
0: I think the number one thing, if you're considering like a reading difficulty, right? The number one thing is speech articulation when they're really young. So the basis of a reading disorder is that that child struggles to pull apart sticky sounds within words. So you hear it first in their speech, right? So they'll, or they'll mishear things in their speech. And so when they, ask for the grandma crackers. It sounds really Mm -hmm. cute, but they really mean graham crackers. Mm -hmm. Um, Or they'll say, let's go take the alligator. And you're like, the escalator or -hmm. the elevator? Um, And so that is often a pretty strong sign that hmm, they're not hearing all the sounds correctly. Um, But they're obviously bright, so they're filling it in with a word they know that sounds similar. Mm -hmm. Um, They also might struggle a little bit with letter identification, right? Right. Um, they might misunderstand letters and the fact that there's like a serial order to them. And so, you know, learning um, the alphabet and its order might be challenging for them or um, learning rhymes, right? And nursery rhymes to them. It, it doesn't make sense that like nip and pip rhyme you know, <laughs> to them. It's just two words um, versus the fact that there's a relationship between the sounds in some way. Right. So that's a pretty strong sign. Um, With writing, there's, you know, kids are younger. So but you'll see that they'll avoid fine motor tasks often. You draw it for me. You write it for me. That's too hard. They don't really want to color very long because it's it might actually be physically hard.
1: That's a good point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then with math, there's again, sort of like fewer like indicators. We just know so much more about reading because there's just a lot of research and reading, because reading is so important in our society. We direct a lot of our research dollars there, right? So with math, it's mainly like you would think with um, like reading, right? It's like number identification and being able to understand more versus
1: less, things like that. And problem solving. Right. That could be um, a playing a factor, how to kind of identify math or something outside of of language too. Right, right, right. I know in our office we we every child that comes in un, you know from first grade and under we do a developmental assessment sure. with, you know by history as well as observation for example and there's a lot of times where I'll Take a pen or a crayon or something, and I'll have them draw a circle or an X mm-hmm. or copy it. I mean, I don't say draw a circle and yeah. X. And and I just observe there's so much to observe from that is, you know, did they follow instructions? Were they able to complete the task? How did they hold their their pencil, for example? Exactly. And, and so on. So in just a, you know, 30 seconds, I can get a lot of information from that. I do agree with you a hundred percent. It's amazing how speech can play a big role and their language development. And again, I'm always I'm all about intervention. And I would say it, some three year olds can definitely articulate very well, but definitely by four years of age, they should be using the correct word, and it should it's it should be about a hundred percent clear by right. that point. Right. So that's a that's an excellent way to um, think about it, you know, before they go to school. So if a child is qualified, I don't know how the other word, but if there's a concern enough where an assessment would be necessary, what are some of the things that actually qualify a child? or challenges that qualify them for something like an IEP? Sure. So
0: um, there are specific categories that kids can fall under to get an IEP. So basically, testing is done to determine if a child is eligible for differentiated education, right, some sort of specialized instruction. Um, And so they have categories of specific learning disability. They have categories, uh, cognitive disability disability. Um, there's also something called other health impairment that sometimes you see um, for students who have like a genetic um, condition identified and need some level of, of intervention, but not something that you might just see under specific learning disability or um, you know, cognitive disability, that kind of thing. Um, but there's also speech when they're really young. And, um, often with this eligibility category, it then means that it opens the door for services. You will notice though, that they use terms like disability in those category titles. And the reason for that is because it's a legal document. It's opening the door saying like, legally, we are going to support your child. And here are the, the goals and recommendations for what we're going to do to meet your child's needs in, um, a free and appropriate environment. Right? So, as a clinical psychologist, we don't use the term disability because this is an illegal document where, you know, potentially providing a diagnosis like a reading disorder. Yes. Um, what I think is important for families to know is that the way evaluations proceed in the school district, the tools that they are using are the exact same tools that a clinical psychologist would use or a neuropsychologist would use just like that school psychologist in the school setting. So sometimes families get a little confused thinking like, we just did testing in the school. Now I want it done clinically because I want a diagnosis. And that's where we we help them understand that like you actually have everything you need right <laughs> at your fingertips, but maybe you need somebody to sit down with you, review it in a different way to help you understand if
1: your child actually met for some sort of diagnostic piece, right? Yes. I I love that you said that because I do find in my office where they come, they're making a, um, in fact, I saw somebody yesterday and they said, you know, we're concerned about ADHD, for example. And I know in certain situations that could be part of the assessment, depending on who's doing the assessment and why. Right. But my point is, is that I, I usually do ask, you know, do you know what the school has done? And great. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, and I'll even say, you know, if if you can provide me with that information, we don't have to do everything all right. over again. And, and especially for those, I mean, no, whether you have resources or you don't, mm-hmm. you know, time is a resource that a lot of families just don't no. have anymore. Yeah. And so, <laughs> right? And so I think that, you know, Understanding, too. So what I hear you saying is that are you talking about testing that's done with every child, or are we talking about additional testing because a um, you know a, a roadblock or you know something has has come up as a need? Oh, yeah,
0: good question. So like those state standardized testing, sometimes, especially in Ohio, they're using maps around here. Um, That could be a helpful indicator of like something's going on, let's do more. But the type of testing I'm talking about um, that would lead to an IEP is a multi-factored evaluation that the district then does. And so that includes multiple people from disciplines within the school that evaluate the whole child to determine if there are enough concerns that rise to the level of needing specific interventions for that specific child. Because in those state tests, it's a group administration. Um, you may not be able to glean much from it other than like, oh, they look like they're doing poorly compared to their peers or their age mates, right? Um, the multi factored evaluation helps um, the child individually understand like, okay, like where are they thriving? What are their strengths? What's going really well? Are there certain environments where we see that they are doing great and um, and then also determining whether or not there are areas where they can be buoyed a bit by accommodations or areas that require remediation and intervention. So the purpose of it, it's they call it a multi-factored evaluation because often speech is involved, OT, um, and then the school psych gets involved doing cognitive academic um, testing. And then they often include what are called norm reference measures. And that just helps sort out, you know, are there enough attention problems that suggest maybe ADHD, right? The school will never diagnose ADHD, right? That's not their, they have, they pick a lane and that is not their lane, right? I understand. Yeah. So, but that's where they'll often refer out if they're like, hmm, this data suggests you might need some clinical intervention in some way. And then that's where they come to you, I bet. Yes. And say, here's my testing. What do I
1: do next? Yeah. It's- so I have a, a question before I ask another question about the IEP because I don't want to forget. I know how I describe an, a learning disability, and I agree with you. I hate using that word learning disability, but you know, in we when I when how do I say this? <laughs> when parents come and see me and they're concerned about school and their performance. I always draw this circle, so I wish people could see what I'm drawing, but (laughs) imagine the word school in the center of a circle, and at 12 o'clock, I write ADD, ADHD, which now we know it's all ADHD, but there's inattentive, there's hyperactivity or combined, and then at about 3 o'clock, I write a learning disorder disability, Mm -hmm. and then at 6 o'clock, I write intellectual disability, so... Mm -hmm. For example, a child who maybe has a genetic disorder or has a, um, a lower IQ, for example. And then there's then at nine o'clock, I put kind of like a, a smiley face or a house and I, or both. And I do that because there's a lot of other factors that also play into school. How are they sleeping? Right. What are they? What is their diet like? I had a nutritionist here who works with schools, and I loved her comment. She said, "A hungry mind cannot learn." Right. So, what? What is their diet like? What is their sleep like? Because, as you know, um, or even is there other concerns like anxiety? Because, as you know, anxiety as well as being lack of sleep, can mimic symptoms of ADHD, for example. Absolutely. So I I draw that, and I've done it for years, and just so that they get an idea that it might not be just one thing. Right. And it might not be any any of them, except maybe we really need to focus on sleep, for example. Or I even use that whenever they're talking about interventions, because then I show them, okay, These are the different interventions. But if you don't mind describing what is, how would you, what definition would you use for learning disability? Sure. Um, For me, I always describe
0: it as the child has to be bright and have unexpected learning differences, meaning like unexpected, you know, challenges in learning at the rate similar to their peers. So it has to be unexpectedly different. That's what makes it a disorder, right? This is a bright child. They should be reading. They should be doing math. They should be writing. And yet they're not. Something's getting in the way. Um, and it, I like what you brought up, that there are a lot of different factors involved that could explain why that learning is diff- difficult, right? Which is why when you do an assessment of a learning disorder, you have to also assess those other pieces, right? You're not just assessing academic skills. If you only assess that, you have no idea if they're, you know, cognitively also bright because that's part of the definition. You can't actually give the disorder without also being a bright child. Um, The other pieces are making sure that they're eating, sleeping, uh, have enough activity level, Mm -hmm. right? They also have access to material and they're in a learning environment that, you know, provides them at least adequate education, Um, and then there could be other factors at play like ADHD, anxiety, mood, depression, that may be all affecting how that child is learning. Right. So when you do an evaluation, you have to keep all of that in mind. Um, you might have a kid who's academically underachieving, but it's not necessarily a learning disorder. It could very well just be you know, test anxiety out of control.
1: Right? Yeah. I, and I then, can relate.
0: yeah. And you could typically sort that out by looking at, okay, what is their fluency like? But then what is their, do they have the actual skills needed in an un, like in a very optimal environment with lots of time. And then if you could see that you're like, okay, this is just more of a, you're getting in your own way. Your mind's going like in the moment when I'm asking you to read, um, versus like a dyslexia.
1: Right. And and I love the way that you describe that. Thank you very much for clarifying it, because a lot of times I use not a definition, but I I kind of describe it as they have the ability to perform up here, and I'm holding yeah. my hand up high, which is like you said they they are bright, but their their actual what they're actually doing is below what is expected. So it's like they're. Their achievement level is here, but the way they're performing mm-hmm. is lower than expected. And but again, is it an actual learning disability or are there other barriers that are playing a role? So that's where having an, an IP, like a more multi um, disciplined evaluation really comes into play. Even mm-hmm. in the questionnaires that I I typically use the Vanderbilt questionnaire yep. for ADHD and it's a parent and teacher questionnaire for people that that don't know what that is and it doesn't just look for ADHD it also looks at are there signs or symptoms of anxiety conduct you know and the other thing is when it, are, is it actually affecting their performance exactly that's yep. the key
0: yep Yep. You can have a frequency of symptoms that you know might bother you as a parent, but if it's not interfering with their learning, it's not interfering in their ability to connect with, with peers and foster friendships, then it's maybe not diagnostic. It just might be that you and your child have differences in how you manage your day to day. And so expectations there might need to be tempered a bit. Um, but yeah, so you need to have, I always call it the find criteria. You need to have a frequency of symptoms and intensity, the specific number of symptoms in the diagnosis and the duration needs to be there before you can ever even entertain a diagnosis. Right. And then you have to put all of that in the context. So, you know, a child that's not sleeping, um, just adopted from a war torn country, right? Like we aren't expecting them to be performing their best. Right. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely not. So
1: you know you need to have context always. Yes, I agree, and I'm sitting here shaking my head like, I I I get it. I even though I've been doing this for so many years, I've already learned um, some really great ideas when it comes to helping families. One of the things that I find challenging as a pediatrician is if I so. For example, if I diagnose a child with ADHD, there is something called a 504, which I know you're aware of. Yep. And it is a great form of intervention, not just for ADHD. I use it for anxiety. Yep. I use it for even other medical diagnosis, mm-hmm. such as maybe this child has um, diabetes. Mm-hmm. And we need to do our best to have them be in an environment allergies for example too where they just feel safe yep. and they feel like their needs are being met but they're not feeling singled out either mm-hmm. so there's a lot of reasons for 504 what i find interesting though is as a pediatrician i actually cannot request for an evaluation for an iep and i i mean i i under i understand it but at the same time I would like to be able to help parents when it comes to when they feel, again, that middle ground where they feel their child really does need it. So let's talk a little bit about in school versus out of school. Like you mentioned, if they find Mm -hmm. that they're in that gray zone, that is an option to go outside of the school system to be evaluated. Not everyone has those resources. Right. So what would you recommend or what are what are the parents' rights or families' rights in order to request an IEP if they if they felt in their gut, like you said, was really necessary. Sure. So if they do want to start with the district,
0: basically they have to write a letter requesting it and use some specific language. And in Ohio, the Ohio Department of Education has Uh, letters in a template form that parents can access. And often if the parent goes to their school district's website, especially a well-funded school with lots of resources, they have that information on their website already. So they can always start there or check their parent handbook and see how to best access the service. Um, At the very least, they can always ask their principal, how do I ask this, how do I request it? And they they generally will tell you. If they don't give you the time of day, that's a red flag, right? But most principals want to help their students, right? Yes. They want their students to succeed. So if you ask them, they'll often point you in that direction. But essentially, they have to tell the school that they suspect that their child has, and then fill in the blank. It could be specific learning disability, attentional concerns, um, you know, if they have a dyslexia. It, I, yeah. Well, no, no, do not say dyslexia. OK, good, that is good the to know. one word to never use in the letter. OK, good to know. I'm hopeful this will change now that there's a dyslexia bill in Ohio that's passing or kind of passing. I'm not sure where we are with it right now, but um, dyslexia schools, I don't know why I would love to find out why. So if anybody is a school psych, they could tell me why um, they will say they don't test for dyslexia but they do test for specific learning disabilities. So if you okay. use their terminology, that is what helps them say like, yep, we will open the door to you. Um, but if you say dyslexia, almost every single time I've had a parent tell me when they've requested and it's been de- denied, it's because they've used that term. Okay. And almost every single time, and I talk to families all over the country, not just in our region, but everywhere. Yes. They are told to then go to their pediatrician because they don't test for it.
1: Uh, absolutely. And yeah. then what I usually do is refer to speech pathology. Yep. But we need to find someone in speech who is trained to evaluate that, first right. of all. And also has access because I know right now in our area there's a wait list to see a speech pathologist. Yes. For example. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so um, clinical psychologists can evaluate, neuropsychologists can evaluate for dyslexia. Okay. Um, speech paths can also do it as well. Yeah.
1: Okay, well, that's good to know because, yeah. like I said, there's a wait list there. So mm-hmm. knowing that there are other resources uh, that are available are so important. Yes. So then once the child, let's say that they now have their IEP, explain then kind of what's the process after that? Well, I mean, to be honest,
0: it's up to the district, but generally, then services should begin, and then parents will be told through like the conversation around the IEP that they then sign, uh, what like how the child will be monitored. Like sometimes it's every six weeks, every eight weeks, right? Yeah. On the IEP, just so, um, you're aware, it's usually pretty vague language. Like it'll say your child will receive 45 minutes of, um, multi-sensory, evidence-based reading intervention a week. And the reason for that is because if your family ups and moves across state lines or to another county, if they don't have a specific, the specific program that your school is using. And they won't be qualified. Right. So they use the general term and then it's up to the district to decide which program. And honestly, it's like okay, are we going to use Crest or Colgate here? Like your dentist doesn't care, it has the active ingredients. And so it's written as here are the active ingredients in the intervention we're going to suggest for your child and utilize, but they might not tell you the brand name. So in that IEP meeting, you can ask them, um, what are you specifically using? How often? Um, Sometimes they provide you more than what's written on paper because they can. Mm -hmm. Um, So you want to find out specifics and then find out specifically when you'll get progress. So, progress on an IEP is monitored heavily because they're what the school really wants to do. It behooves them to uh, progress monitor and get you off of that, right? So, yes. Yes. Treat them yeah. and
1: street them, like exactly. is what we used to say when I yeah. was a resident.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, that's their so as long as the parent is aware of, like, okay, I'm expecting it in this format these many weeks, then the conversation's open. And I find that that can be really helpful for the student, but also helpful for the parent because they know what's going on. Now, if they are providing services where you think it's not enough, right, there there are a couple options, right? You can work with the parent advocacy uh, group through your district. There's a free advocate for parents that can help you in that conversation with the school and negotiate either more minutes or more time or different services. Um, So that's an option. Um, You could also, you know, look privately, um, how to supplement. The only thing I would caution about private services plus school services is that you don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. It might confuse your child. Correct. So I would, you know, make sure whatever you're doing is in alignment and there's communication, right?
1: I, I I know that there's some school-based programs too where they actually work together. So it's there's programs where it's it involves the district, but it's also with a private or, you know, um, mental health or, you know, children's type of um, psychology group that also goes into the classroom, for example. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. like Guidestone or Crossroads mm-hmm. or, or something
0: like that. Yeah, where they're contracted with the school. Yep. Yep. So sometimes that could be written into the IEP so that if your child needs specific counseling, um And the school, right, the school is there to educate your child. They're not there to provide therapy services. So often you might have that resource to you right in the school, which is really nice. Um, But yeah, that could be part of an IEP as well.
1: So I mentioned that I had an opportunity to visit Lawrence School. Would you mind taking a moment to explain exactly what the school is about and I want to say how amazing it is, but (laughs) um, I actually know people personally who have had children that have attended uh, Lawrence school. I also have, you know, some patients who I know are also um, students of the school and are really thriving. So I've, I've had a direct, not a direct view of, of, just the resources that it provides but a lot of people probably don't even know that in our own backyard we have a school that is nationally known as well as few and far between nationally and so we're so fortunate so if you wouldn't mind taking a moment just explaining lawrence school and the schaefer center to to others thanks yeah so lawrence um I will say, so
0: you mentioned at the top of the the show that I train graduate students from Case Western Reserve in Kent State, right? So I was one of the initial trainees through the Schaefer Center in 2007, and that's really when I fell in love with the school. And I did everything I could to warm my way back in <laughs>
1: because I was like, the school is just so special. I need to be here. Okay. Um, I just have to say, you do not – like, you look like you just came out of school. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at you trying to do the math, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. So, But yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. So
0: the school, I think what makes it unique, especially in our lower school, that's K to six, it's really focused on remediating kids with learning disorders, right? And also setting up an environment for kids who might have attentional or executive functioning concerns that might be related to ADHD or anxiety, um, really thrive. And the way they thrive is that their teachers have like a low ratio, right? So there's one teacher, nine students. Um, there's a lot of behavior-based modeling in the classroom. That's very positive, right? So you mentioned before, kids with learning differences feel like they're nagged all day. They feel frustrated, oh. right? So one of the ways we optimize their learning, one is making sure that we build relationships with those students before they're even really doing any work, right? The first beginning of the year is just getting to know our students. They're getting to know you. Um, you're taking a lot of time to assess like, okay, how is the student going to respond to feedback? Do I need to be constructive in a way that really helps repair where they're coming from? Right. Cause some students, they have been told like, you know what, you just might never read and that's okay. You could play art, oh, no. <laughs> right? Like I've definitely heard those statements before that I'm just sure break my heart. Have. Right. Um, and so they take the time, which is valuable, but that that's a big part. That's where a lot of schools, like they're already doing that. So that doesn't make us special. I think what makes us special is that we're able to provide students with that specialized instruction um, in reading and writing really the first half of their day. So instead of getting, you know, 30 minutes daily, which would probably be the max that a public school district could do, you know, we're really doing two and a half hours a day with these students using multisensory Orton-Gillenham-based instruction, right? And so those students then, if we know mastery is all about time on task, they're getting lots of time on task, right? And they're also doing it in an environment that is, you know, constantly rewarding them, um, showing that what they're saying matters and that their effort is praised, Right. And so, you know, we really see them engaging in the work and we let them know that we appreciate it. And I think that definitely helps them, you know, love school again and want to do well because all kids, really all kids want to do well, right? Yes, they do. Um, And sometimes when they come to us, they've, they're pretty fed up because they've spent, you know, years being told you're not doing it enough. You're lazy, right? Something like that, which is like awful. Especially when they're probably the one working harder than anybody else in the room. They right? are. They are. Yeah. Now, so we also have an upper school campus, seventh to twelfth grade in Sagamore Hills. And that school is amazing because the things that they really focus on are connections, right? Community connections and making sure that these kids are involved. So kids with learning disorders routinely miss out in those after school activities and sports events because they're tutored. And so, you know, for them, the best parts of school are really those extracurriculars, right? So that is a priority. And then again, all the intervention is provided throughout the day, so you don't have to do that supplemental work outside the day. Um, typically, if we have students that have been in our lower school and they matriculate to our upper school, we've really pretty much remediated the learning disorder. At that point, we're helping them with fluency, which is really the hardest thing to remediate. So yes, they're accurate, but they need more time or things delivered in a deliberate way, like chunked so that they can really um, absorb it, master it, and then show what they know. And so often it's giving them the space to show what they know, going at a pace that's slower so that they can really absorb it well. Um, And then as they get older, right, like we're taking off the training wheels. And so they're doing much more independent work, but in a Warm environment with lots of people to help them if they're starting to falter or
1: fall behind, right? I love that when you said chunk it, because when I like to tell parents, I explain like a a pineapple, for example. Yeah. You know, when you look at a pineapple, we don't just eat the whole pineapple. No. You know, you don't just pick (laughs) it up and eat it, right? We have to chunk it, you know, we have to dice it up. Yep. And so I, I use that analogy a lot of times with families when I try to help them in how they can help their kids. And so when you said mm-hmm. that, it made me think of the pineapple and, and how communicating in that kind of chunked way versus giving them the whole pineapple can be overwhelming right? for anyone, really. Right. What do I do with this? <laughs> yeah. Do all the children have to have an IEP or qualify for an IEP in order to... Be a student there?
0: No, no, and in fact, that's kind of part of our battle: is that we have students that arrive on IEP and then no longer are eligible, mm-hmm. um, which has some things tied to it. Um, in Ohio, there's a financial piece that's tied to IEPs. That if you go into a private school or parochial school, you didn't have access to this wonderful scholarship called the John Peterson Scholarship, which helps parents access uh, resources with state funds, but they have to say that my child's no longer going to a public school to access that fund. Right. Um, so the great thing is like, yes, they no longer qualify for an IEP, but we love our environment and the level of accommodations that they're getting are beyond what I would get on a 504 plan in my district. Right. And also my child's socially connected. Um, so I really don't want to take them out of that environment. Right. So um, they do not need to have an IEP. But, yeah, the people that we serve, um, the students are bright with unexpected underachievement. Um, They have executive functioning difficulties. They might have, you know, really be nursing some serious wounds from a previous school environment. Um, That could be part of the picture, too. Um, But really, like the kids that we're engaging in our curriculum Have to be motivated learners that just haven't been in the right environment, right? In order to succeed. Yeah.
1: I use, you mentioned um, much of something that I say a lot as far as goals, and that is achieving academically, um, decreasing um, disruptive behavior, if that's even present. Sure. But making friends, you know, and being social is so important. Mm -hmm. Their safety is important. But also self-esteem, and and like I said, we both touched on that. And we forget about, I, I don't want to say we forget about it, but we can't forget. We have to be mindful that a child might be achieving just fine but they, it, it could be affecting their self-esteem. So all of a sudden now they're in ninth grade and they're just done, you know? It's yep. like, or or sooner, hopefully not sooner. But I, I do catch those kids every once in a while where then, you know, the, the families are like, is this anxiety? Is this hormones, you know, is mm-hmm. this? And, uh, and where they've been doing well all up until this point. And so I think one take-home message is to, remember that it it's it might not be just one thing that by doing by talking to your your district by using your gut talking to your pediatrician for example and just to know what direction to to go in because like that circle that I draw there could be a lot of different factors that feed in to the school performance and I agree 100% that kids really, they they really do want to learn. They really do want to do well. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And I think the one thing I think that is excellent about Lawrence is that they had the foresight to think like, let's create a community program so that everybody in our community can really glean some information about their child's learning without necessarily having to attend Lawrence. And that's where the Schaefer Center came out of. We had families that could not access testing because um, it was either too expensive or there were two-year wait lists, right, mm-hmm. um, through like a hospital system. And so we have that low-cost um, option for testing so that more families can access it. We also offer screens that are either free or at most $50 Um, depending on what kind of screen it is, so that you can then advocate for your child in the district if you need to show some level of data, right? Um, But having that service means that families can call us and say like, hey, I don't know where to go. What's next? Or I just got all this information unloaded on me. I don't know what to make of it. Um, And so half of the phone calls I do with the community are really just helping them either reassure or guide them to the resource they really need to have. And then the other half, I'm splitting them between appointments with me or guiding them towards their district or guiding them through to like a treatment provider, right? We'll sometimes we'll just say, you know what, you don't need testing. Your child clearly has anxiety. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like please see a t- treatment provider. Here's some suggestions if you need some in your area.
1: Yeah. And so to reiterate, you don't have to have all the resources or um, to be able to reach out to, to the Schaefer Center, for example?
0: Oh, no. Yeah. So anybody can call us. Um, I feel calls from around the country, but mostly regionally mm-hmm. uh, and word of mouth. Um, so yeah, people can call and then we'll usually spend like a good 20, 30 minutes with them, helping them sort out what to do next Um, Yeah, so we always, we kind of have this um, sort of, like we have some taglines over the Schaefer Center. So we say that we like to evaluate, educate, and navigate. Mm. And so, you know, yes, we're doing assessment. That's the evaluation part. Um, But part of our evaluation isn't sorting out if you even need one, right? Yes, correct. (laughs) So that's huge. And then the educating part is helping parents know, like, why you need testing or not and what's involved and where you can get it. It doesn't necessarily have to be through us. We off, we freely give referrals because sometimes parents don't want to use graduate students in training as part of their assessment purpose. That's totally fine. Um, I will easily hand you some referrals if you don't like that. Um, and then the, I would say the navigating, navigating part, yeah, would be referrals. So sometimes we have families that call and they're just like, I'm just not sure where to go, where to start. Um, or I'm on this two year wait list. Where can I go instead? Do you have suggestions?
1: I don't know anything else in our
0: area. Yeah.
1: I love that. And I really appreciate you coming today and talking about this because I do frequently get parents who are just like, I don't want to wait anymore. You know, I, I feel like I've been waiting and I and I want to do what I can for my child now. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing not only your knowledge, but also what resources that are available and answering that question like, what do I do next and where do I go? And I truly appreciate it. I know I've learned some things today and uh, which I know will help the patients that I serve as well. Thank you. I'm so glad you had me here. This was fun. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Don't forget to follow me wherever you like to listen to your shows. I'm also on Instagram, TikTok, and growingupwithdrsarah.com. So let's grow up together.